0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, Sponsored by GEHA.
1: Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, expensive software licenses still snare too many agencies. Plus, Five agencies take on a Valentine's Day problem, romance scams. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Veterans Affairs gave its IT workforce a big raise last summer in the hopes of bringing in more private sector techies. The raise, in fact, did lead to more hires. Well, now VA officials want to repeat that strategy, they recently approved a so-called special salary rate, giving human resources people at Veterans Health Administration a 15 percent raise. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with VHA's chief officer for workforce management and consulting, David Perry.
2: Typically, special salary rates are a tool that we have that historically have always had those required us to coordinate with OPM to establish those, and they're more of a broader perspective when that occurs with OPM to look at the federal government at large. But thanks to the PACT Act, VA was granted that authority to use the same analysis and the same criteria to establish special salary rates, but we could do so for VA. And we have that authority thanks to PACT Act through the end of 2027. So with respect to HR, HR has been a mission critical occupation for the federal government for going on two decades now. And so we've been critically understaffed in this occupation for quite a long time. And uh, outside of having a special salary, we've tried to use all of our other incentives, recruitment, retention, and then of course we also had the critical skills incentive that PACT Act gave us, which was our first endeavor to help normalize our losses and our attrition from this workforce, and then also to maintain our competitive, try to remain competitive with private sector. And so we use the CSI, the Critical Skill Incentive, first as we work to develop this more robust and longer term package, which is the SSR for HR. So that's kind of the evolution of how we got this put in place. And I can tell you as you know, we uh, we were able to get that up and running and in place earlier in January. And so big exciting, uh, I think, moment for us and this occupation to get our workforce more in line with what private sector is able to offer. And so our intentions for SSR, not only as a a recruitment tool, but more importantly as a a retention tool as well. So that once we get HR on board, we can keep them into this profession.
3: Point of clarification here you said that the critical skills incentive was being used and then you guys went with the ssr can you give me a little bit more of a an understanding of the difference between the two and and what vha can do with one versus the other
2: Sure, absolutely. So the critical skills incentive is also, uh, it was a unique authority that was given to VA under the PACT Act. It was for closing critical skills gap or mission critical occupations that could go up to a 25% incentive that was an annual incentive. And so very similar to what we would do with a recruitment incentive or a retention incentive that's based on a one-year cycle. And so we did that for HR, but we only did it for six months. We didn't do a full year as we had utilized with some of our other occupations in anticipation that we knew that we were working on the special salary rate. So our timing was that we needed to do something immediate. And so critical skills incentive was that tool that we had at our disposal to kind of put in place to stabilize our our HR workforce as we worked through the analysis and approval process for the SSR. And so there was a little bit of lag in that just because it took us a little bit longer to get the SSR in place. Um, but that was the, that's kind of how it evolved and transitioned. So we started out uh, once we had the authority under PACT Act to use the critical skill incentive. We did so for the HR workforce. And then that, of course, expired. And we did not renew a new round of CSI, knowing that the SSR was in the works. And of course, now was in place. The biggest difference is uh, SSR does not need to be renewed or uh, reapproved on an annual basis. And so it's more of a permanent uh, adjustment to salary, and so it's a, it's a much preferred mechanism when we have when we meet the criteria and justification for when we use an SSR. It is absolutely more uh, employee-centric for us to use that authority versus a, a critical skills incentive, which is a real finite, short duration to fix up you know short-term gaps and and problems with recruitment or retention.
3: And so the benefit or the thing that's better about the SSR is that there's no need for it to be constantly renewed. Is it a better deal for the recipients who get that SSR versus the CSI?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And so with the special salary rate, it does become part of your salary. And so things like your retirement, any of your TSP or R401K savings, all of those, uh, so when an SSR has been in place, all of those things are positively impacted. Whereas when you receive just a, a standalone incentive, such as a CSI or a recruitment or a retention incentive, those don't actually count towards like your salary calculations for things such as retirement and or any 401k contributions. So from an employee perspective, it's a much better outcome when you can actually do a, an adjustment to their actual base salary.
3: Yeah. And to your point about retention, those are things that are important if you're looking at a career with VA that, you know, those are salary calculations that go into, you know, a pension down the line if you choose to stay with the government for that long a period of time.
2: Absolutely. Great point.
3: As far as... This as a tool in the toolbox here, you know, we've seen not just this SSR for these HR hires, but we have also seen it elsewhere in the VA in their IT department. What are you guys looking at as you look into the future of who else might be able to benefit from this SSR?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the the IT series, our twenty two tens, were the first occupation um, that we looked at, and again, uh, that was one of our greatest needs, also a mission critical occupation, uh, and highly competitive with private sector for that that skill set. And so it made uh, it was incredible uh, made an incredible amount of sense to look at them as well. And so that was the first occupation for VA that we were able to leverage um, the SSR for. We had started looking at our IT workforce for the SSRs before we moved into doing the same for HR. And so uh, we're now looking at essentially all of our non-clinical mission critical occupations so things that are more along the line in our title 5 or our administrative occupations to see where we do also have large gaps in our recruitment and retention and also you know not meeting the needs of what private sector can offer and so those for us to remain competitive in so i think we're looking at those occupations now we don't have anything that we have officially submitted or requested that for because those are all still in the analysis phases so happy to you know share as we move And progress in those, but we do an annual review of all those mission critical occupations for both the clinical side and the non clinical, and where SSRs are applicable for those non clinical or those Title V occupations. So we wouldn't go in and do special salaries, for example, for a nurse or a physician because it's not applicable. To Check
3: back in on something else that we've spoken about in the past, the HR Mm -hmm. star program. Uh, That's been, I think, a way to bring in the volume of people you guys are hoping to. Are you guys still getting the pace of graduates that you were hoping to get from the
2: program? Yes, absolutely. So we just placed cohort five. Uh, And so we're currently working on cohort six. So we're graduating, you know, anywhere from 83 to 87 trainees that are now, they'll get their trainee title taken off and they'll be an HR specialist, if you will. And so we've just finished our fifth cohort placement of those, those staff into our visits and so into our field offices. So things are moving along quite nicely. And so, of course, we still have ongoing cohorts that will continue to graduate each month. And we're looking at now to make sure that we are focusing on the right functional areas within HR still. So HR STAR was set up into three focal areas for us. So staffing, so recruitment and staffing, employee relations, labor relations, and then our technical review course. And so now we're looking to see if we need to expand that into other areas of HR, such as benefits management, classification, and some other areas, just to make sure that we're being responsive to what the needs in the field are. Which, you know, I'll just circle back just because we have the SSR in place. It's not a silver bullet. So we still have to focus and really make a concerted effort our recruitment efforts, but also making sure that we're training our staff for that retention aspect as well. So while the SSR has definitely helped us gain some parity with private sector and other federal agencies, we still have a lot to do to make sure that we're still developing and growing and training our workforce
1: as well. David Perry, VHA's Chief Officer for Workplace Management and Consulting, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, five agencies take on a Valentine's Day problem, romance scams. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Dating apps might peak on Valentine's Day, but they're a gushing sluice way for frauds known as romance scams. Now they're getting extra attention from at least five federal agencies, including the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It's a national awareness campaign called Dating or Defrauding. Joining me this Valentine's Day with more, the director of the CFTC's Office of Customer Education and Outreach, Melanie DeVoe. Ms. DeVoe, good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I guess my first question is, of all the agencies, that there are others, but why the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in an app scam? I would think definitely Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, FTC, which are also involved. But why you guys?
4: So we're not the only agency that's involved in this. As you mentioned, there are several agencies looking at this, including the FBI. But the reason the CFTC is involved is because the fraudsters use cryptocurrency commodities as their pitch to get people to invest. And so the line goes, hey, you can make a ton of money investing in crypto and hey, my uncle or my aunt or some family relative has some insider information, you're going to make tons of money. So because there are futures contracts in cryptocurrencies, CFTC has anti-fraud jurisdiction over our cryptocurrency commodities even in the non-futures markets. The fraudsters also like to use foreign exchange or Forex as their pitch. And they'll say, hey, you can make a ton of money in Forex, which is another product that the CFTC has that anti-fraud jurisdiction over. So that's why the CFTC is involved.
1: These types of come-ons to invest in cryptocurrency or Forex or whatever it might be, these tend to come, I guess, later on in the encounter that someone has on a dating app. In other words, don't they spend time... I've never been on one, so I don't know how they work, but, you know, married 40 years. But do they get you in based on the normal functions of a dating app? And then as you get to know that non-person that you think is a person on the other end, that's when they bring on the scams and the investment schemes? That's
4: absolutely right, Tom. This is a very long, confident scam, and these people are very patient. So the the quote-unquote relationship can build up over weeks, even months, before the idea of investing is brought on. So yeah, it's a very elaborate scam. We actually coined the term, and others have used it too, but financial grooming fraud. Because of the grooming aspect to this fraud, it's very devastating for the people who are brought into it.
1: And the person that is doing the scheming and defrauding could be having a thousand accounts at once going on. And it might even be an artificial intelligence bot, fair to say?
4: That is fair to say that the person underneath the scam could have thousands of accounts. And we have seen reports in the news that AI is also being used. The CFTC, I don't believe, has publicly made that claim yet. But, you know, with the advance of AI, anything is possible. They can clone your voice. AI can do all these crazy things. So I think, yeah, we have to be cognizant that it could be used in these scams.
1: And tell us the other agencies and what kind of setup you have and is it a task force is it a memorandum of understanding what's going on from a programmatic standpoint federally
4: we have formed some informal alliances over this dating or defrauding campaign it was initially launched in 2022 with a couple of partners at the time, we had the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and others. And now, for this most recent campaign, we've reached out informally to a bunch of other agencies to let them know that we're focused on this and to provide them with additional information about what you know our social media campaigns are doing. In addition to the federal regulators, we're also talking to state regulators about this issue through, there's an organization called NASA, that is the North American Securities Administrators Association. We are working with NASA as well to let them know what we're doing and we share our customer advisories with these other agencies.
1: We are speaking with Melanie DeVoe. She's director of the Office of Customer Education and Outreach at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And do we know any idea of the value of the money that might be lost in a given year among people that fall victim to these scams?
4: So the FBI recently came out with one of their spokesmen said that in 2023, the total losses reported were $3.5 billion. That's billion with a B. So this is a lot of money flowing to, unfortunately, on the other side, it's international organized crime syndicates out of Southeast Asia. That's a lot of money going from the United States to crime gangs. We coined the term financial grooming gangs, just to be a little more specific about who we're talking to.
1: They're mostly beyond the reach then of federal law enforcement and of the CTFC and of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because they're just out of reach.
4: So that's an interesting question, Tom. There are some ways that we can reach these gangs at the CFTC, and we've done a bunch of things. My office, the Office of Customer Education and Outreach, is trying to prevent the victimization through raising awareness of the fraud. Our whistleblower office has put out a whistleblower alert, basically trying to encourage people to provide tips if they know about domestic financial grooming fraud activities If people bring a tip to us and it leads to successful enforcement action, the commission's allowed to pay the whistleblower 10 to 30% of what we collect. So that's kind of, you know, when you're talking about big sums of money, if someone's able to bring something, that could be a payout, you know, assuming all the other criteria are met. And then finally, our division of enforcement has brought a case in this matter, the Debbie X matter, which we reference in our press release. So there are things that the domestic agencies can do, because even if the fraud is happening and orchestrated overseas, there are domestic actors who are helping these fraudsters. They're helping them in a couple of ways. They're setting up local bank accounts in the United States, and they're also setting up cryptocurrency accounts with our major cryptocurrency exchanges. So there are definite touch points that domestic agencies can work on here.
1: It strikes me that someone from the task force and the alliance of agencies could get onto one of these apps and, if possible, like string the perpetrator along long enough, almost like the old-fashioned of, you know, keeping someone on the telephone till they can trace where the phone is located. You know, I'm dating myself. But it seems like you could triangulate in more closely on the perps if you could keep them stringing along and have them thinking that they're on the cusp of someone sending them a lot of money.
4: That's an interesting question, Tom. I can't really comment on what other agencies are doing, but I do want to talk just briefly about when criminals use cryptocurrency, that's a permanent record that is traceable. So you can trace the movement of money through the cryptocurrency networks. You know, they do leave a trail when they're using that crypto it is an interesting thing that you can trace back. And there have been several recent cases where people have been able to trace this stuff back even though the crime was committed a while ago. So there are interesting things that the CFTC and our... Other, you know, agencies that are working on this can do in the space.
1: And you're also having a public outreach program for awareness on the part of consumers of what's going on, too.
4: Yeah, we are doing public outreach. This is, you know, we're very fortunate that you we're willing to invite the CFTC to join us to talk about this important issue. I'm personally going to speak with other federal regulators. I'm actually going to San Francisco today to speak to federal regulators tomorrow. I'll be mentioning this. And then I'm also going to be speaking to some state regulators next week about this. So we're definitely, you know, working to bring awareness. We also have a social media campaign that the wonderful people at the Office of Public Affairs at the CFTC have done. So watch out for that on LinkedIn, It's on Facebook, and I believe it's on Twitter, which we're now calling X, I guess. But anyway, they've done some very creative things.
1: And so if someone is looking for information from a federal agency on social media, I guess now they're adding check marks and stars and colored dots and stuff so that you know that's a legitimate account.
4: With the CFTC, you know, that's a great question. Uh, Since I'm not an OPA, that's probably more of a Donna question. I'm sorry, but we do post from our CFTC official
1: account. All right. Melanie DeVoe is Director of the Office of Customer Education and Outreach at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a COVID-era contracting question continues to bedevil the government. But first... Expensive software licenses still snare too many agencies. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, here on Federal News Network. Every federal agency uses software. Too many pay through the nose. Technically, you don't buy software, you license it. And when you end up with more licenses than users, you waste money. The Government Accountability Office has found that's exactly what at least 10 departments do. More now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Acquisition Management, Carol Harris. Ms. Harris, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. And what you found is kind of a perennial problem. It's not necessarily having the software license, but having information about the extent of your licensing is what you found that is just a shortfall in a lot of places.
0: That's exactly right. So in this study, we looked at the most widely used and costliest software licenses by vendor and product. And we also did a scrub of a subset of nine agencies to see whether they had under or over purchased their top five licenses.
1: And what did you find? Had they overpurchased, I'm guessing?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you know what? The results were quite fascinating. So we asked each of the 24 CFO Act agencies to give us their five most widely used software vendors with the highest quantity of licenses installed. And, you know, based on the final tally, we found a total of 36 vendors. Uh, 10 of those accounted for 73% of the licenses. Um, And if you go into our report, we've got this big prominent pie chart that identifies all the vendors, but those included Microsoft, Adobe, and Salesforce, to name a few. Similarly, when we looked at the highest amounts paid, you know, the costliest, there were 34 vendors that were paid the highest amounts for FY21, totaling about $5.2 billion government-wide nine of these vendors accounted for 77% of these licenses. Uh, Microsoft accounted for about a third of that pie, about $2.4 billion. Um, Other vendors included Adobe, who was reported 12 times, totaling about $63.5 million. And Cisco, another example, reported four times, totaling about $1.1 billion.
1: Right. So that's all well and good if you are using all the licenses that you have purchased, and that's what it's going to cost you. But you found that perhaps there is more licensing hanging around an agency than they're actually using. And therefore they're paying for potential, but not actually usage. Right. And, you
0: know, we tried to do that analysis. So as part of it, okay, so we, I just, you know, broke out, okay, what's going on at the vendor level Uh, the second part of what we were tasked to do was to look at it from the product level, you know, what were the most widely used and which were the costliest, but we weren't able to make that determination because agency software data are inconsistent and incomplete across the government. So, you know, for example, we found multiple software products that were bundled within a license agreement with a single vendor, and then agencies were unable to break out any detailed information from there. So, for example, Commerce, you know, they had about 140 specific products in their Microsoft agreement, but then they weren't able to identify, okay, From there, what was the highest installed products and what were the highest amounts paid among them? And so, you know, the bottom line here is that the lack of reliable data at this level means we really can't pursue government-wide solutions for volume purchasing and discounts, which is what OMB's category management initiative is all about. And we have open recommendations to OMB from a prior review that, once implemented, should close this gap. But let me go into my second objective that of our study, because this is really going into, you know, the the focus that, that, that you're asking for, which is, you know, the under and over purchasing. So there are two practices that agencies really need to do in order to effectively identify the right sizing for their organization. Number one, they need to track software licenses that are currently in use. And number two, they need to regularly compare their license inventories to purchase records to determine over and under purchases. And from that subset of nine that we examined, none of them fully addressed either of these practices and therefore weren't able to determine whether or not for their five most widely used licenses, whether they've over or under purchased them. And like three agencies weren't tracking their licenses currently in use, and four didn't regularly compare their inventories to, to purchase records. And, and this really was very disheartening.
1: We're speaking with Carol Harris. She's Director of Information Technology and Acquisition Management at the GAO. And I guess maybe there's a couple of things going here. One is, you alluded to earlier, there is not necessarily a direct acquisition from the software vendor by the agency. There's a couple of tiers involved sometimes, and it might be a reseller or it might be an integrator that is delivering licenses through some other large contract, and therefore, maybe the numbers get buried in there. And maybe the second issue is agencies just overbuy licenses so that that 101st user doesn't log on and whoops, you can't work because we're at our limit of licenses.
0: Right. Absolutely. And you know that underpurchasing matters because ultimately when vendors come in to do their forensic analysis and they see that, oh, okay, agencies are actually using more of our licenses or there is um, a gap there and agencies need more, then that's gonna result in additional fees called true up fees that can actually be quite costly. And what's really most disheartening about our findings is that their time has been a real backslide in federal progress to manage software licenses. So if you recall back in 2014, we did a comprehensive review of software licenses. Only two of 24 agencies had, had software license inventories. And then by 2020, all 24 had them. And this better management resulted in a cost savings about $2.1 billion. Okay, fast forward to today, none of the nine selected agencies had such an inventory. And it's really disappointing for sure. And I think reinforces that old adage of, you know, what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed.
1: Sure. Do you think that the cloud has played a role in this lack of knowledge because people have gone to online accounts, say, for, well, for Microsoft mainly, Office 365, you've got to have all your people. Each one of those is a license. And so maybe the fact that it's somewhere buried in the cloud and there are value-added resellers and integrators that come between the agencies and and Microsoft itself that might make it fuzzy or just less transparent than it might be.
0: Right. I mean, I think that the cloud certainly plays a factor here. Um, but the bottom line is like when we really dug into the why, why agencies weren't tracking their under and over purchasing, it really boiled down to six agencies of the nine hadn't developed and implemented procedures for these activities. And the remaining three had procedures, but they weren't consistently executing them. So it really boils down to the proper management.
1: And who are the six truants?
0: The six truants. Those were the nine that we reviewed. I mean, they were all doing things that that they shouldn't, but USDA, Energy, HUD, Justice, State, VA, OPM, SSA, and USAID.
1: Right. So it's impossible then to really tell whether they are overpaying, and if so, by how much, without the data.
0: Correct. Correct. And so we made 18 recommendations to those nine agencies to consistently track software license usage and to compare the inventories with the purchase licenses. And eight of those agencies agreed. One HUD had no comments. So hopefully we'll 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 see some progress here. But but overall, again, you know, to the to the overall theme of, of this backslide, it, it's it's something that we need to keep an eye on and make sure it doesn't happen again.
1: And interestingly, the vendors themselves, can't they be the source? Can you call them up and say, hey, how many licenses have we got with you?
0: Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, when we were going through our review, the, the information that many of the agencies provided came directly from those vendors. And, you know, that that's something that I, I think is is a real problem where, you know, the, the these agencies need to have their own inventories and their own information um, in order to cross-check and ensure that, you know, these vendors are working from accurate data.
1: Yeah. It's probably a stretch to think that a vendor that finds they have 25% excess licenses that an agency is paying for, are going to call up that agency and give back 25% of their yearly revenue. Exactly. I mean, this is the American there's, way here. Exactly.
0: There, there's definitely money on the table here.
1: All right. So the 18 recommendations are out. Most people agreed with them. HUD had no comment. Uh, sounds like something you're going to keep track of, because I think there's members of Congress that have been bird-dogging this issue for quite some time, too. That's
0: right. Absolutely.
1: And who is responsible for keeping this data riding herd on this? Is it the CIO channel, the CFO, or somebody else?
0: The CIOs are the ones that that should be responsible for for championing and collecting this information for the enterprise.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you're on notice. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology and Acquisition Management at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information, a link to her report, at slash federal drive. Subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a COVID era contracting question continues to bedevil the government. This is the federal drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the federal drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A recent argument a contractor made to the Contract Board of Appeals in the Defense Department might lead companies to the wrong conclusion. It's another case of a company trying to recover unanticipated costs under a fixed-price contract. Costs incurred because of the COVID pandemic. The case is about jurisdiction, though, and not cost recovery. We get details now from Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, you're saying this particular case is causing people to think, oh, goody, we can get recovery for costs that we didn't know we were going to incur. But you're saying, "Eh, not so fast.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's getting a lot of press. And I think there's a good reason for it. People incurred a lot of costs over the years when COVID was really a hot issue and folks were stuck at home and people couldn't work. And they've wanted to recover it for years. And there have been mechanisms. And Congress passed the CARES Act and Section 3610, which Glad to talk about it a little bit more, but not that many companies really got relief there. This case could involve that ultimately, where a company does get relief under Section 3610, but it might not. We don't know yet.
1: Well, tell us about the particular case.
5: So this case was brought by a company called Aviation Training Consulting. They operate, maintain, support, and upgrade the trainers for the B-52 bombers for the Air Force. So in 2010, they had people who were home because of COVID and they thought they ought to get relief under Section 3610. 3610 was a congressional grant for agencies to have authority to modify terms and conditions of contracts without consideration to reimburse at contract billing rates for any paid leave that a contractor provided to keep its employees in a ready state. So the authority was limited. It only applied to a contractor whose employees or subcontractors couldn't work on site because of facility closures or other restrictions. And in this case, aviation training was seeking 512000 or so from the government under 3610. But 3610 ultimately was a grant of authority. It wasn't a mandate that the government had to give that money, which I think is the basis for this case. The contracting officer denied the claim, aviation training appealed, but then the government moved to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction.
1: And whose jurisdiction did not have the
5: authority? This was at the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, and the government said, hey, this was never a basis for a valid claim and is not the basis for a Contract Appeals Act appeal at the board. And so, board, you've got to kick this.
1: Right, but the board disagreed with the government.
5: They did, and I think it was a pretty straightforward application of the law. Again, I don't know where the government's really coming from. I think this is the second time in a month that we've talked about a case where I just have no idea where the government's coming from. Here they said, well... It's really not a claim because there's this sort of unfettered grants of authority to the government to consider or not to consider these requests. Well, that's not what a claim is. A claim is defined really broadly under the Contract Disputes Act as something relating to a contract with the government. Relating to a contract is broad. This clearly relates to a contract. So on that basis, it is a claim, and the board does have jurisdiction.
1: So the board disagreed with the government and said, we will take this case, in fact.
5: Yeah, that's right. The government tried to analogize this to public law 85804, which has also gotten a lot of focus in the past couple years, because it's a basis for the government to grant extraordinary contractual relief to contractors. So if you've got crazy costs that you didn't anticipate and it's going to knock you out of business and it, your business, the government has to continue, they might consider granting you relief under that statute. That statute is clear that there is no appeal authority under the CDA. So the government said, hey, this is the same thing, 85804, CARES Act, but here's a problem. 85804 clearly doesn't permit jurisdiction. right? No such thing exists in the CARES Act's legislative history or language of the statute.
1: We're speaking with Procurement Attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. So therefore, from the face of it, it looks like then aviation training consultants do have a claim that can validly be brought to the contract board of appeals, which will then have to decide on its merits.
5: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I suspect what they're going to do is try to argue that the government abuses discretion by not granting relief under 3610, which is a pretty high bar. But, you know, they'll get their chance to explore that theory and the government can't kick it prematurely like they were trying to.
1: I think, you know, I have some suspicion the government probably in its mind, in the minds of the contracting officers, probably don't disagree that the contractor might be entitled to this compensation. In this case, it's only a half a million dollars only. Big deal to the contractor, not that big a deal to the government. But, you know, with the threat of a continuing resolution for the rest of the year, for the lack of new budget authority, you know, new
5: appropriations
1: for the current fiscal year, I just wonder, as a practical matter, they wonder if they'll actually have that money at the end of the year.
5: I have to guess that this is money that would have been from prior year appropriations. But you're right, Tom. I'm seeing a lot of that where the agencies are being – penny-pinching might be the nice way to say it with the ways that they're granting you know, relief or issuing new contracts for things that they know they need, where they're doing it in you know half – batches, basically, for what they really will need for the whole year, because they just don't know how much money they're going to continue having.
1: Right. And the CARES Act did not necessarily appropriate money to give to agencies to cover contractor costs incurred because of the COVID.
5: No, it didn't. And that's been the problem with some of the other reliefs that Congress have granted and like the National Defense Authorization Act for the past two years. Both of those 2024 and 23 had provisions authorizing the government to grant relief for cost increases due to inflation. But both of them were contingent on appropriations. 23, it never happened. I sort of think 24 is not going to happen either.
1: Yeah, right. And so the government has fixed costs, and there's a automatic reduction of 1% should the CR go for the entire year. That's a, you know an old budgetary rule. So there's really no money in the accounts to pay for ongoing costs of a contract. And I guess maybe the government looks at it. I'm just trying to guess what the Air Force might have been thinking is, well, they're still in business. They're still providing us B-52 training systems. I'm just going to look the other way and let them eat it.
5: That might be the case. I mean, we're starting to see programs getting cut. I don't know that FARA getting cut had to do with budgets, but maybe. And uh, I think we're going to start seeing other big programs that are Being squeezed in ways that nobody's happy with because of these budget issues.
1: Yes, because contracting costs are really the only, in some sense, variable costs the government has. You can cut training and travel for people, but that's trivial compared to contracting spending. And if you need to squeeze, that's your accordion bellows.
5: That's right, but it doesn't, it doesn't really support a robust defense industrial base, right? And we keep hearing time and time again that. Uh, The industrial base is shrinking, and there are too few companies willing to do business with DOD and the government at large. Well, this is not how you help.
1: Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haines Boone. Thanks so much.
5: Thanks for having me, Tom.
1: And by the way, the CDA will decide this case, so you'll be watching to see what they actually say on the merits.
5: We'll all be watching. I mean, with the low dollar value at issue, I suspect there's going to be a settlement if there's any merit. But you never know. Maybe there'll be a decision on the merits ultimately.
1: And the merits of the case may not necessarily be the claim that the company has, but simply whether the government was correct in exercising its discretion. That's a big distinction.
5: Yeah, it is. And the government has quite a lot of uh, leeway in exercising that discretion. Right? It has to be rational, and rational is a pretty low bar. So if the contractor is going to prevail here, they're going to have to demonstrate that it was totally beyond the pale for what the government did. They had money. They could have given it out. They should have given it out. Any reasonable person would have. That's a really high standard to meet. Yes.
1: Yeah, so the contractor still has the high bar here and the government, the low bar, to put it simply.
5: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't see the contractor likely to prevail, but I don't know any of the facts, really. So we'll see what happens.
1: Well, somebody's got to fly those eight-engine planes. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this program note, every day this week, our special report is highlighting the 85% of federal employees who work outside the Washington, D.C. region, led by 28 federal executive boards nationwide. Learn more at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tamman. And now, The
5: Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 14th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, expensive software licenses still snare too many agencies, Plus, five agencies take on a Valentine's Day problem, romance scams. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, multiple congressional hearings and dozens of letters to agencies later. Republicans on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee are still not happy with the details they've got on federal telework. Now they're turning to a new source of information to try to learn more. Joining me with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, tell us, who are they calling on and what exactly now are they asking for?
6: So now they are turning to the Office of Management and Budget to get a little bit more information from uh, agencies that are working on telework or return to office plans. That, of course, Tom, makes sense. OMB is, of course, the ones who put out the memo in 2023 that called on agencies to return employees to the office more often and started that whole process. OMB has what are called work environment plans. This is something that agencies were required to send them as part of that return to office memo that we saw last April. And it outlines individual telework and return to office uh, policies for agencies. So now you have Members of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee wanting to get copies of those reports. They've, of course, been looking for more detailed information on returning to the office for many, many months now.
1: Right. That was the memo that talked about the healthy workplace and healthy environment. It was like 19 pages of dense prose that very few people could understand.
6: Yeah, the idea there was, you know, they called it organizational health. So they're looking at, you know, I call it return to office memo because that's what most people might know it as. But it's more generally this idea of, you know, having a workplace that makes the most sense for productivity. Sure. (laughs) That's how OMB puts it.
1: Now, these Republicans on the Oversight and Accountability Committee in the House, why did they send this request to OMB? Because they couldn't get what they wanted out of OPM?
6: So pretty much they've been going around for many, many months now looking for more data on telework. I think their main concern, what they say, is that they think telework is leading to poor performance from federal employees. They've gotten a lot of pushback from saying that sort of thing, but they're basically looking for data to back up whether or not telework is working for employees. And they believe that what they have available, either from OPM from individual agencies, or what they've heard in multiple congressional hearings that they've held. They feel like they still haven't gotten enough information, and they're looking for more. You know, I, I believe they it was last May that they requested 25 agencies to give them specific numbers of teleworking employees. And they said that in the responses that they got from agencies at that time, there were 11 of them, so close to half, that didn't weren't able to give those uh, numbers of teleworking employees for one reason or another.
1: And besides data on for agencies that reveal it, how many people work and telework how much time, what other data is actually available? Is there data, for example, that ties outcomes or productivity to telework.
6: So this is the part that is really interesting. And I think the answer is really that it just depends on the agency. Every agency is a little bit different in the way that it collects telework data, in the way that it measures performance or productivity, which makes sense. You know, agencies have different missions or different ways to measure whether or not their employees are doing well. But overall, the Office of Personnel Management or OPM issues an annual telework report to Congress, and that's where Congress gets its main source of information on the percentage of employees who telework, how often they telework. And OPM, in their most recent report, talked a lot about the benefits of telework. So that is basically the main source. But even within that report, OPM has said that agencies don't always have all of that data available. And sometimes there are gaps in the data. So it's not a perfect report. And that might be part of the reason that you have Republicans pushing a little bit harder there. There's also information in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey or FEVS on telework. But even those answers are a little bit different. So there's not really a clear clear number, which is what Republicans are asking for.
1: Right. I mean, a lot of agencies depend on measures of casework, for example. How many cases did we adjudicate? Did our backlog go up or down? How many loans did we process? How many returns did we process? I mean, those are fairly objective measures. Last year, we did 10,000. This year, we did 12,000. And by the way, 40% more teleworking hours. I'm making up these numbers. Is there a tie-in? I don't think anyone, even academically, can can say one way or the other.
6: I, I think that's fair. I think it's really hard to say one way or the other, but, you know, from federal employees themselves, they a lot of them do say that they feel more productive working from home, and they are able to contribute to the mission just the same as they are in the office. So I think that's why you do get a lot of pushback from employees, from unions on these return-to-office mandates from agencies but we're still seeing those continue. So there is a little bit of back and forth, a little bit of tension there that doesn't seem to be going away.
1: Yeah. Some of the people who went into complete telework, I heard from one reader at a large agency after reading a column I did, said that she was skeptical of atomizing everyone through telework. And now she's a total convert and thinks that this agency's return to work schedule will actually undo some great gains they've made in her particular unit. So I think, yeah, a lot of it is very situationally oriented as to what the real outcome is. And there's other pressure sources on federal telework and returning to the office. What are some of those?
6: I think the the main one that we're seeing other than House Republicans is the White House itself. So you have the chief of staff, Jeff Zients. He's made multiple calls on agency heads and cabinet officials to say, you know, essentially why aren't you returning to the office fast enough and really kind of making a stronger push to get employees back into the office. OMB's general guideline is they want about a 50% in-person presence from federal employees across all agencies. So I, I guess some are a little bit more ahead than others in that regard. I think the Department of Veterans Affairs and Homeland Security are ones where Science has said they're kind of more positive examples but there's others where we haven't really seen their full plans develop so I think you're getting a little bit a little bit stronger of a push from the White House as well as in Congress.
1: Yeah, and it really depends on an agency like Veterans Affairs what function, what division. I mean, Veterans Benefits Administration, people that do casework and processing of claims and and applications, well they don't need to be in the office whereas, you know, if you're a thoracic surgeon, well yeah, you probably have to do that in person. So, I mean, again, it gets back to the situation. I was on the phone for an hour with an airline representative the other day on a complicated trip I'm trying to take. And all of a sudden I could hear her dog barking. I said, you're teleworking. She says, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. She was in one coast, the airlines based 2000 miles away. And, you know, you couldn't tell the difference. That's what networks are all about and IT is all about. All right, so this letter is there from these Republicans. Did they demand deadlines and compliance from o- from the Office of Management and Budget, the White House, effectively?
6: They're, the deadline that they gave is actually today, February 14th, to respond to that request. So we'll see if OMB gets back to them with more information. OMB didn't sit, tell me anything about plans to respond to the letter. So it's just going to be a little bit of a waiting game there. But oversight staff members said, you know, they also didn't say whether or not they Are planning to have another hearing on telework or what else they would do if they didn't get, or if I guess if they weren't satisfied with OMB's response. So we're right on that deadline. We'll see what happens.
1: All right. Well, if Jeff Science has any sense of humor, he'll send it in a Valentine's card up there to Capitol Hill, but I don't think he does. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, five agencies take on a Valentine's Day problem romance scams. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.